0: This This is the Buck Buck Sexton Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode
1: what really matters
0: with actionable intelligence. One
1: small family.
2: Make no mistake.
1: America. Ready. Great. You're a great American again.
2: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton.
1: Now.
3: This is the Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Here on a snowy night in Manhattan. 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Again, this is Ben Weingarten pinch-hitting for Buck. And even though it is spring training, I have to admit that that analogy sort of pains me as a Mets fan after what occurred yesterday, which we won't talk about a 13-year, $330 million deal in our division.
2: Well, Ben, you do know that I'm a huge Phillies fan. Well, yeah,
3: I didn't want to get into it before this. And now I expect the show to be sabotaged. So this should be an interesting few hours here live from New York. As I mentioned, this is Ben Weingarten. Uh, If you haven't heard me before, I'm a senior contributor at The Federalist, a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research, and you can follow me on Twitter at B H BHWeingarten, where I do talk about baseball at night. During the day, it's all business. Uh, Most of the baseball tweets have been uh, as neurotic and upset as you might expect as a New York Mets fan. Blowing our window, blowing our window. All right, if you're not a baseball fan, I will spare you with my sorrow here uh, as the guys behind the glass laugh uh, at my dismay. I wanna open tonight first by thanking Buck because he does a vital job here and that is to articulate the values and principles that we all share and that are not well represented. And you know they're not well represented when you see what the loyal adversary, the Democratic Party, does on a daily basis. And we're going to start tonight by talking about Democrats, and we're going to close by talking about Republicans and conservatism and and what the future holds. So this week, of course, the big story was Cohen-Kabuki Theater, Michael Cohen, the least credible person, a person who perjured himself in front of Congress. Now the red carpet is rolled out for him in Congress, of course, you know, just happening to coincide with the highest level nuclear negotiations with the North Koreans that you could possibly have. Oh, by the way, there were some other big stories as well. Robert Lighthizer was on Capitol Hill, and he dropped some important information about the Chinese trade deal that there would actually be an enforcement mechanism and there was news but the fact that incremental tariffs would not be levied on the Chinese as part of ongoing negotiations. We have the collapse of a socialist regime happening in our own hemisphere. We have India-Pakistan squabbles, which are highly dangerous and potentially threaten many U.S. national interests in that part of the world. But the media focus was on the least credible person you could possibly have. That was the media's focus. Oh, and by the way, he was coached, it seems, or at least had communications with dubious representative Adam Schiff. Oh, yeah. And speaking of Russia, by the way, this week it was revealed the Trump administration engaged in a cyber attack to completely take offline a Russian troll farm that was attempting another shoddy effort to post some garbage and influence, quote unquote, the 2018 midterm election. Worst collusion ever. Worst collusion ever, folks. Where Michael Cohen is important is not because of anything Michael Cohen said, although what he did show is that there is no collusion. Once again, for the millionth time, after two committees showed it, after all the leaks from the Mueller special counsel showed it, not that Cohen has any credibility, but at this point, he has nothing to lose. He's going to jail, essentially. No collusion, not one iota, this person who is so close to the president, this person who could read his mind based upon his testimony. Cohen isn't what's important. What Cohen represents is important, and that is that he is a precursor to what's coming for the next two years of every of endless coverage of every last iota of Donald Trump's life being investigated by his worst enemies. So Axios's lead article this morning, which is sort of a good proxy for where the left establishment sees the world going. They write, whether or not Mueller is sitting on a grand finale, Democrats are picking up the baton with a vast probe that already involves a half dozen committees. That's great use of taxpayer dollars and will include public hearings starring reluctant witnesses. So who are these witnesses? They want the Democrats want to call Trump family members with subpoenas if necessary. The investigation will touch Trump's businesses, his foundation, because after all, his businesses and his foundation are so relevant to his presidency right now. And then they want to talk about his presidency. Oh, and it it could extend to 2020, top Democrats tell Axios, by coincidence. Besides Russia, topics include conflicts of interest, money laundering, and Jared Kushner's security clearance and other White House clearances. Rep. Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland who's on the House Oversight Committee, says that they, the committee is zeroing in on the Moscow project. Yes, the famous Moscow building project, which never got off the ground, where there were never any high level conversations, which had no impact whatsoever on anything relating to this presidency. The Russia connection and the influence of oh, other foreign actors like Saudi Arabia. They've teased that for a while, that they're going to look at basically every foreign connection, because after all, we found so much collusion already. Am I wrong? Again, so many of these actions actually occurred before the presidency. So they're really irrelevant in context of anything resembling impeachment, which is what they ultimately want to get to. So and let's continue a little bit down that road. I'll quote here from a Wall Street Journal article titled House Committees Plan to Interview Trump Organization CFO and Others. Congressional investigators don't want to cross wires with Mr. Mueller's probe into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, which is expected to end soon. Among other matters, Mr. Mueller is investigating if Mr. Trump or members of the campaign colluded with the Russians and if the president has obstructed the progress of the inquiry by firing a subordinate, by the way. They didn't put that in the article, but that's the reality. Firing a subordinate, somehow obstruction, potentially declassifying documents, somehow an impeachable offense. The article continues, Mr. Trump has repeatedly denied wrongdoing and called the investigation a witch hunt. Some Democrats are concerned that not all of the findings from those investigations will become public. By the way, if there is no indictment, then it should not become public. You're supposed to protect the innocent. Justice Department policy prevents the indictment of a sitting president, most legal experts say, and Democrats fear that evidence against the president may not be released if it isn't in an indictment. I thought this was supposed to be the party of criminal justice, but apparently not. So then there's a quote from Representative Raja Krishnamurti from a Democrat from Illinois and a member of the House Oversight and House Intelligence Committee. Quote, we should just assume the worst and that we're never going to find out what any of these investigations reveal if they don't lead to an indictment. That's the worst. We're talking about a member of the House of Representatives, someone who is supposed to at least feign interest in justice. And what is he saying? He's saying we have to assume the worst, i.e. we're not going to get information that we can use to attack a president if it isn't used to indict someone. That's the worst. You know, if they want everything that Mueller did exposed, Congressman Nunes today during CPAC said something interesting. He said, and I agree with him, if this is going to happen, if we're really going to go down this road, let's see every communication of the Mueller special counsel. Let's see every last shred of evidence. Let's see it all. Let's see all the personnel. Let's see the background checks that were done into the personnel who comprised the special counsel. Let's have it all hashed out, and then let's declassify every last document associated with any investigation of President Trump. I don't think the investigators want us to look at the information that they use for their investigations. I want to go back and take a trip down memory lane with a clip here, and I'm not going to tell you when this clip occurred or who said it, but let's roll clip one.
0: The effect of impeachment is to overturn the popular will of the voters. We must not overturn an election and remove a president from office, except to defend our system of government or our constitutional liberties against a dire threat. And we must not do so without an overwhelming consensus of the American people. There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment, or an impeachment supported by one of our major political parties and opposed by the other. Such an impeachment will produce the divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions. You may have the votes, you may have the muscle, but you do not have the legitimacy of a national consensus or of a constitutional imperative. This partisan coup d'etat will go down in infamy in the history of this nation.
3: I'll give you a second to write down on a piece of paper who you think it was that made those comments and when those comments were made. All right, are you listening? That was Gerald Nadler in 1998. You might remember Gerald Nadler, Democrat from New York. He's still in the House today. Back then and today, he would be the person as the chair of the House Judiciary Committee who would oversee impeachment proceedings. Back then, he was defending Bill Clinton against impeachment. Isn't it amazing how that exact argument could be applied today, but you will never see the left apply it Because it doesn't suit them. It doesn't support their political interests because they aren't actually principled. But you know what? Impeachment itself is actually besides the point. Yes, Democrats would love to impeach and remove. If they could, they're not going to be able to get to the removal. And frankly, they recognize some of them, at least, the more sober ones, the old guard, if you will, and we'll talk about the old guard versus the young Turks a bit later. The old guard recognizes that impeachment is a weapon that could lead to self-destruction. They saw the Republicans do it. And with some of the folks, the more progressive folks in the Democratic House right now, they could be in big trouble if they actually go down that path. But impeachment, again, is besides the point. It's not about that act. The goal of these investigations is to continue to create the appearance of smoke. But there's never any fire. There has never been a smoking gun. There is no fire. You've had people who loathe the president take unprecedented action to look into communications, private documents, take away boxes and boxes full of the most private communiques with lawyers of the president and others. There's no there there. But the momentum is such that they can't stop. They have to feed their base and they are wedded to this narrative. And so, again, it's about creating the appearance of smoke for as long as possible, and that's going to mean into 2020 and through the election, clearly. Now, the question is, does that actually move the needle with you, the American people? And I would suggest that it won't. Those who believe this is essentially a hoax, we're going to believe it's a hoax. Those who are on the other side and believe it's a Russian spy, they're going to believe what they're going to believe. The people in the middle, those old Reagan Democrats turned Trump Republicans, I don't think that this is going to play well with them. I really don't. But that said, you can bet that House committees are going to leave no stone unturned because they need to create a constant hysteria. This isn't about oversight. This is a political conviction in search of the appearance, at least, of crimes. It's an investigation in search of a crime. And in a worst case scenario for the investigators, the process itself is the punishment. The process is the punishment. The whole purpose of this, this whole effort that started well before Donald Trump was elected president, and we're talking June and maybe even earlier in 2016, the whole purpose was to sabotage and paralyze a presidency. And that's why we have four years of quote unquote investigation. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Lines are open 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for joining us on this Friday night. 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Before the break, I was talking about process as punishment when it comes to all of the investigations, first, in both the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, the Mueller Special Counsel, investigations that preceded them, I want to kind of summarize what has transpired because I continue to believe that this is probably the biggest scandal in American history. And only a small fraction of so-called journalists are the ones covering this. And that's a travesty. It's a travesty not because we care about media, but because we care about truth. And thank God we have the Internet. We would not have an informed citizenry without the ability of anyone potentially to be a journalist. So the intent, first of all, when it comes to every step back when, you know, when the president talks about, well, Jim Comey assured him he's not a target. The president was always the target from probably even before investigations or dossiers or anything else started. We're talking in earlier in 2016 when he was popular and it actually looked like, wow, this guy is going to be competitive. So the first attempt was let's destroy him during the pre- in the run up, in the elections, in the primary season even. But then as it advanced, let's start investigations as an insurance policy, you know, just in case the 0.001% chance this guy actually triumphs over Hillary Clinton. Then let's spy on his associates and let's use informants to try and entrap them in Russian collusion premised on a salacious and unverified dossier paid for by Hillary and the DNC and collected from shady Russian sources. That's an interesting way to try to, in effect, frame someone. That's very. It, it doesn't get any more Quintonian. It really, it really doesn't get any more Quintonian than that. So he gets elected. Before he's even elected, there are approaches. There's recordings of conversations. Now, what is the intent, uh, intent of this? To take out two people who were vital to the president. Number one, the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, has to recuse himself because of Russia from the very start. So in other words, the law enforcement bodies, FBI and Department of Justice, The person at the top who might be able to control them, taken off the board. The national security advisor who actually agrees with overturning what the foreign policy and national security establishment have done for decades, taken off the board. So two vital cogs pulled out immediately, taken off the playing field. Later on, as they're continuing these investigations, they use a firing letter that's drafted by one of their own, Dag Rosenstein, To try to create a case of obstruction. See, Rosenstein wrote the letter on behalf of the president. The president fires Jim Comey. But isn't that interesting? It was sort of a trap in some way. It's kind of, it'd be interesting to actually, well, of course, Congress can't interview Rosenstein because he's running out the clock. He's talking to favorable media offline, getting them to write favorable things about him in a war that he is having with McCabe. But Congress doesn't get to have any oversight over something that really matters. Dag Rosenstein. All of this is happening while Congress is thwarting the president's agenda, and that's on a bipartisan basis. Courts are holding up policies under asinine universal injunctions. And then you have the Mueller special counsel, which is not only squeezing anyone close to Trump, but toxifying anyone around him, trying to get them to cough up something, anything that will stick. So that's part of it. But then the other purpose is to cover up the needed investigation of the investigators. How do you have a team, and and not just their political inclinations or the fact that they were all pretty much pro-Hillary people, but how do you have people who are the establishment of the establishment as the ones who are supposed to be independent? If you were a part of the deep state, quote unquote, you can't be independent. If your career was made, if you spent decades in these bureaucracies, in these institutions, you're independent special counsel in name only. Many of the folks involved with wrongdoing, which was never investigated, the investigators probably very closely know Robert Mueller. They might have gotten promotions from him at certain points during their career. He was the FBI director. How can it possibly be independent? Oh, yeah. And then in the middle of all this, we find out about, you know, prospective coup d'etats. 25th Amendment literally deposing a president. That is the stuff of police states. So who are the ones destroying the institutions? Who are the ones acting in true Russian, if not Soviet, fashion? You know, Vladimir Putin is probably smirking about this whole thing, I have to say. And what is going on in Congress right now is merely the extension of one big, never-ending effort to create the appearance of illegitimacy, of crimes, so that even if President Trump isn't taken out by Congress, the voters will do their bidding. Or at very worst, he'll be a president not even able to stand on one leg, but maybe standing on a pinky toe. You know, the gravest national emergency of all has been the rolling effort to frame the president as a national emergency that requires regime change. Or maybe there never was truly a regime change in practice. The first peaceful non-transfer of power in American history. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825.
1: Why pay your hard-earned money to join an organization that fought tooth and nail for a government-run healthcare system? One that scripted portions of White House speeches behind closed doors to ensure the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the organization that stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners. You know, that's AARP. Join AMAC instead, the conservative alternative. AMAC offers the same kinds of money-saving benefits of AARP without the liberal agenda. Become an AMAC member right now at amac.us buck. AMAC fights for your values, protecting our borders by enforcing common sense immigration laws, supporting small business, and standing up for your individual God-given freedoms. AMAC is the way to go. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Join right now at amac.us buck. That's A-M-A-C dot slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America.
3: This is the Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Phone lines are open, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. And let's go to the phones, and let's go to first to Charlie in Maryland. Charlie, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten.
0: Hey, thanks for taking my call, Ben. I've been following this Mueller thing for some time now, and— I am mad at the politicians for only one reason. They don't run this country. The bureaucrats run it, and they are openly about it. They are committing treason against this president, and nobody is really saying much. I just find it absolutely amazing that
2: we let this go.
3: Charlie, thank you so much for the call. And, you know, I... I, I 100% agree with you. This really comes down to the administrative state at the end of the day. You know, Regimes change or administrations change. Control of the House, control of the Senate fluctuates. But the bureaucrats are forever. They are always there. And many of them are almost impossible to fire. In fact, if you actually look at the government's internal ratings of government employees, everyone gets like an A++. It's almost impossible to get downgraded. Probably the the more corrupt or political acts that you make, you probably rank higher, sadly, in many agencies. And this has been reported and documented, though obviously not bandied about frequently by the political class. Not to say, of course, that there aren't rank and file folks who do a great job. But if you're in a political bureaucracy and you are not political, it's very tough to rise and advance. That's why someone like a Mike Flynn, incidentally, it was so amazing that he rose to the position as the head of the DIA under President Obama. Amazing that he ended up at that point, given how impolitic he was. But it really does come down to the bureaucracy, the administrative state. And incidentally, Congress... Congress has ceded power to these agencies. These agencies technically fall under the executive branch, but it's clear they are a fourth branch of government. I wrote, I wrote a lengthy piece about this, actually, and I, I just tweeted it out, where I talk about the fact that we have created a fourth branch of government that is unelected, unaccountable, and it molds the powers of all three branches. So actually, if you look at what, how a federal agency works, literally – Federal agencies play judge, jury, prosecutor, executioner. So if you are involved in some sort of legal action when it comes to an agency, you have a business. Your business is regulated by an agency. You flatter regulation. You want to litigate against against that agency. You have to go in front of an administrative judge. So it's a government judge. You couldn't have a more rigged playing field. There's a great quote. I urge you to look it up. Look up Gary Lawson. He's a law professor who's written about the administrative state and shows you that the administrative state is tyranny. If you have all three branches of government in one subsection of the executive branch, that's tyranny. The whole purpose of separation of powers was that you didn't have executive, legislative, and judicial functions all under one roof. That's why this, this is much bigger than any one particular president. It's much bigger than these last two years and maybe the six years to come. It's fundamentally about who rules. Do the, we the people rule or do bureaucrats rule? Congress has ceded its power to these agencies. They've delegated their own powers away. Shame on Congress for doing it. And it also allows Congress to never take responsibility for anything. And we wonder, why does every pivotal decision end up at the Supreme Court? Well, it's because Congress is completely derelict in its duty. It's out to lunch. There is no courage among Congress to actually do its job, which is to legislate. One other quote that I would urge you to look up and I'll paraphrase it here is from Harry Truman. Harry Truman talks about the fact and, and again here, we're talking now, you know, 70 years ago almost, 60-70 years ago. Harry Truman talked about the fact he thought he had power as president until he met the bureaucrats. They he says something like except for those damn bureaucrats, they run the show. That's a, that's a president. So imagine now, you know, we're almost 70 years on from Truman, how much more entrenched and powerful government is, which is already so big and already has literally stacks of, if you looked at the federal register, we're talking hundreds of thousands of pages. And then when you look at the rules and the regulations, which is really where laws are written, that's not written by a Congressman. A Congressman says, here's sort of the broad policy and it might be a thousand or 3000 page bill. But then every single part of that bill all of the rules and regulations are then delegated out to these agencies. So the real laws come down to a bureaucrat. And by the way, if you're one of those bureaucrats and you want to go to the private sector, you might, you might yourself take it upon yourself to draft the rules that they're really complicated and only you as a regulator know how to interpret them. So what do you do? You go work then in the industry that you were regulating. And what do you do there? You consult On the most complex regulations ever that you yourself drafted, because you're the only one who can help that company avoid getting in trouble with a particular agency. And you make X times as much as you made while you were working in the public sector. So it's a really perverse incentive system. And it's a perversion of limited government, consent of the governed. They run the show, you don't run the show. All right, let's go to another call. Let's go to Bill in West Virginia. Bill, you are on the Buck Sexton Show. Thanks for taking my
2: call. Hey, uh, I believe in fighting fire with fire, and that. And they've been uh, hounding Trump with uh, over the 2016 ele- election, and uh, he's had no no proven uh, collusion by him with the Russians, in that. I think the 2018 election should be investigated because the Democrats seem to want to keep the border open, and Trump and the Republicans should call for an investigation of the Democrats and any possible collusion that they're using to aid the the, uh, Mexican drug cartels by wanting to keep the uh, borders open.
3: Thanks for the call, Bill. And, you know, it's interesting. They never want to talk about foreign influence when the foreign influence might actually help Democrats. But let's look at the facts. I've talked about this on a prior episode where we went really deep into the weeds on the census citizenship question. What's that all about? Well, non-citizens, including illegal aliens, get counted in the census. The census, the population numbers count everyone, citizens and non-citizens. So that includes the you know, the kind of range of 10 to 20 million illegal aliens, or maybe more in America. Those households are counted in the census. And what are those census numbers used for? Total population is used to determine the apportionment of seats in Congress and local seats as well. In other words, Those places that have more illegal aliens, they get more political power than those places that don't have a lot of illegal aliens. And naturally, the places that are magnets for illegal aliens, well, of course, they're naturally blue places, sanctuary jurisdictions. And then hundreds of billions of dollars of federal funds are doled out based upon population numbers from the census, population numbers inflated by illegal aliens. So you want to talk about foreign influence and meddling, it's right there. Democrats encourage it, they incentivize it, they protect illegal aliens, they probably give illegal aliens in some ways more rights than you have as a U.S. citizen. That's foreign influence in meddling. And that's not even to mention, by the way, a little tidbit that Democrats are loath to talk about, and we'll get to this a little bit later tonight. Chinese foreign influence. According to Vice President Pence in a landmark speech that he gave at the Hudson Institute last year, the Chinese were running ads, for example, in Midwestern states that were impacted by the tariffs the Trump administration put on them to essentially try and lobby against those tariffs and also use them against the Republican Party for their own political interest. That's foreign influence. And it's not just then. If you look in the papers today, Huawei, massive Chinese tech company, which the U.S. government has been clamping down on, telling our allies in Europe and elsewhere, don't use Huawei technology for 5G because it's going to create a backdoor and allow the Chinese to spy on you. Guess what? They are running marketing literature, lobbying American citizens in our newspapers today, telling you how great a company Huawei is and they don't pose a threat and they come in peace. So you want to talk about foreign influence? That's foreign influence. And this is not even to get into... Hmm. If we applied the same logic applied to to Donald Trump, to Barack Obama, and Victor Davis Hanson has written a great piece on this, I urge you to read, well, would we start looking at Iranian influence? How could a president ever make those sorts of decisions towards the Iranians? The appeasement of all appeasement. Neville Chamberlain, peace in our time. What if we started looking into that if we're going to make decisions, investigatory decisions on the basis of, huh, these policies are kind of sketchy and maybe they're helping our adversaries or not, as the case may be. In this case, actually, when it comes to Trump, the foreign policy establishment has scuttled an attempt to reach out to Russia to split off Russia from China. And oh, by the way, our own intelligence services have now said Russia and China are closer than they've been in decades to our great detriment. But what if we applied that foreign collusion meddling standard to anyone else? I don't think it's a road we want to go down, but the genie is out of the bottle. Let's take a quick break. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. We were just talking a bit before the break about foreign influence, meddling, the broader scope of all of this and the broader context for all of this, which comes down to legitimacy of our government, whether there's consent of the governed, whether the investigators themselves need to be the ones who are investigated, and this is in some sense an elaborate cover-up of a plan that they never expected would be revealed because they never thought Trump would win. But let's look ahead to 2020. And I noticed an article, it didn't get a lot of press, but I think it's going to be the first data point that we may be able to point to in terms of trying to delegitimize at the very beginning a potential Trump win in 2020. So Politico had an article, came out on the 20th. Titled Sustained an Ongoing Disinformation Assault Targets Dem Presidential Candidates A coordinated barrage of social media attacks suggests the involvement of foreign state actors. And I want to read a little bit from this because it's critical to note that they are getting this information out now that foreign powers are using social media to try and destroy Democratic candidates. So it starts, a wide-ranging disinformation campaign aimed at Democratic 2020 candidates is already underway on social media with signs that foreign state actors are driving at least some of the activity. The main targets, Senators Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders and former Representative Beto Cultural Appropriation O'Rourke. Four of the most prominent, announced, or prospective candidates for president. A Politico review of recent data extracted from Twitter and from other platforms, as well as interviews with data scientists and digital campaign strategists, suggests that the goal of the coordinated barrage appears to be undermining the nascent candidacies through the dissemination of memes, hashtags, misinformation, and distortions of their positions. But the divisive nature of many of the posts also hints at a broader effort to sow discord and chaos within the Democratic presidential primary. Hmm, where have we heard this narrative before? Dissemination of memes, hashtags, misinformation, and distortions of their positions. Well, if that's going to swing the election, why didn't we lose the Cold War like 60 years ago? I mean, if if it was just literally, let's put out some memes, hashtags, misinformation, and distortions. I mean, wouldn't the Soviet Union have won? They could have flooded American news with all sorts of memes and hashtags. This isn't to discount the fact that foreign adversaries use misinformation and disinformation for their ends. They absolutely do. If you want to see that, look no further than the Khashoggi caper. Look at how they created this narrative about Jamal Khashoggi that actually has completely influenced U.S. foreign policy, pushing us away from the Saudis, trying to attempt to undermine a bloc against Iran, the number one threat in that region of the world. Foreign influence is real. Misinformation and disinformation are a fact of life, and they are massively powerful because when you change people's minds, you ultimately change their activities, and in politics, it's obviously paramount. But let's put in context what Russia did last election. If you look at the they spent a few hundred thousand dollars on some crappy social media ads that, yeah, there may have been several million impressions. But do you think that anyone changed their mind based upon any of the garbage that was put out by the Russians? You think that that caused discord and influenced the election and swung votes? There was never any proof that anything that the Russians did swung votes. In fact, if you look back, if you even look back at the DNC emails that were leaked, the poll numbers didn't really shift after that leak. So when we talk about influence, swing elections, leaking emails, that could be devastating, obviously. But memes, hashtags, misinformation, and distortions, if you have people that are making videos where they're making it seem like candidates are saying things and they're fake videos and the technology is there to do that sort of thing, yes, that could certainly swing things. It could certainly cause discord. And if you're an evil actor that wants to do America harm, you can come up with some pretty substantive ways to cause a lot of chaos in our system, especially with the media that we have, which is willing to run with this stuff and rarely does their homework. But memes, hashtags, misinformation, and distortions? And it's only the Democratic Party that's been subject to this? So it continues. The cyber propaganda, which frequently picks at the rawest, most sensitive issues in public discourse, is being pushed across a variety of platforms and with a more insidious approach than the 2016 presidential election, when online attacks designed to polarize and mislead voters first surfaced on massive scale. Recent posts have widespread dissemination, include racially inflammatory memes and messaging involving Harris, O'Rourke, and Warren. In Warren's case, and and it goes on and on. And they say not all of the activity is organized. Much of it appears to be organic, a reflection of the politically polarizing nature of some of the candidates. And on and on. Guess what? The candidates are going to destroy themselves by themselves. It doesn't take social media memes and hashtags. You know, only Democrats think that hashtags can defeat evil adversaries. I, I mean, come on. Come on, a kid in their basement could do this. Again, but when real influence operations actually impact us, the media hoaxes, the Khashoggi caper, the Jesse Smollett story, Russiagate, Confucius Institutes, as we'll talk about a little bit later. What is this really about? Again, number one, delegitimizing a potential Donald Trump victory in advance and propagating the narrative, the meme of foreign influence, boogeyman. But two... Ultimately, this is about hyper-regulating political speech, which means killing conservative speech on social media. The left wants to have a monopoly on political thought, and that's traditional media, social media, academia, the whole bureaucracy. That's the reality. This is ultimately going to be about regulating political speech, and regulating political speech is not going to be to the benefit of protecting all First Amendment speech political speech, of which is the most important, and conservative speech, of course, which is quite valuable. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, 844 We'll be right back.
2: And I read it, and I was like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore, because, again, I'm at least trying, and they're not. So the power Is in the person who's trying regardless of the success if you're trying you've got all the power you're driving the agenda you're doing all this stuff like I just introduced Green New Deal two weeks ago and it's creating all of this conversation why because no one else has even tried because no one else has even tried so people are like oh it's unrealistic oh it's vague oh it doesn't address this little minute thing and I'm like you try You do it, right? Cause you're not. Cause you're not. So until you do it, I'm the boss. How about that?
3: With all due respect to Miss Ocasio Cortez, she's not the boss on this program. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton program, and that was Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez saying that she's the boss. Although I think Nancy Pelosi would beg to differ. But it brings up an important point, and that is that when Democrats aren't warring to try to bring down Donald Trump, there's a war going on, a Democrat civil war. You know, we've heard for years, Republican civil war. There is a Democrat civil, civil war for the soul of their party. It's the old guard versus the young Turks, because now we live in a world where the likes of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Dianne Feinstein, they aren't sufficiently radical. And that video of Feinstein with the kids, I don't even know where to start with that, except to say that it is scary that progressives start that young. And we've talked about this before. Their whole idea is to indoctrinate from day one so that everyone is woke. I think you're going to see, though, that Dems, the Dems cannot get out of their own way. Whether it's the Green New Deal, fake, fake rollout, actually the real rollouts where we're talking about slaughtering cows and no more air travel and transcontinental railroads and the like, cross-oceans railroads, high-speed, failed in California. Or we're talking about Congresswoman Omar's anti-Semitism, where basically every single week she racks up another point on the anti-Semite board. Or Rashida twaib insinuating Mark Meadows is a racist. It was pretty blatant, by the way. She was calling him a racist. I, Mark Meadows is a better man than I because he, he apparently went up to her and hugged her after the fact and forgave her. But while the left is going to overreach, and I think you're going to see in these hearings that they're going to beclown themselves. They're not going to be able to help themselves because for the younger ones, the more impressionable ones, the more naive ones... The ones who don't know about how Washington works, they are so energized and animated. Their Trump derangement syndrome is so deep, it's going to shine through and people aren't going to like what they're going to see. And then for the others, you kind of have to tag along because if all the energy is with the progressives, you need to take up the most progressive causes possible because that's votes, that's fundraising, that's media airtime. I mean, look, Ocasio-Cortez media darling. They like her not just because she says insane things, but because the media actually agrees with a lot of those things. Democrats right now, if you look at the presidential candidates, and we're going to go through a little bit of the horse race in in just a bit. It's a party of infanticide. It's a party of socialism, including socialized medicine. It's a party of the mass slaughter of cows and the grounding of all plans, as I mentioned. It's a party of abolish ICE. It's a party of border walls are immoral. It's a party of anti-Israel, pro-Iran deal. Orange man bad is one of the only things that unites all of them. I would suggest that they failed to learn something from Barack Obama, who I think agrees with all of these progressives, and he's sort of their leader, even though he's been very quiet because he's making millions of dollars at Netflix and elsewhere. But I guarantee you he's playing a role in this election. The Democrats... The progressives have regressive progressives. I like to call them regressives. We'll see if that catches on. They failed to learn from Barack Obama that to paraphrase Van Jones, you have to drop the radical pose to achieve the radical ends. What does that mean? It means you need to wrap your radicalism in a non-threatening, non-offensive, non-left wing, tinfoil hat wearing sort of robe, garb. And this is why, if you look back to the original regressive progressives, the Angela Davises of the world or the Bill Ayers of the world, the radicals of the 60s, they stopped throwing bombs and they started fighting wars for the minds of young people. They put on suits, some of them, at least most of them, shaved and showered. And they went into the institutions. They became teachers. They became bureaucrats. They needed to drop the radical pose to achieve the radical ends. And Barack Obama did the exact same thing. He covered the radical leftism... In a seemingly non-threatening, common sense, every American, every man kind of way. It did shine through at times, but not enough to imperil his eight years. Although Democrats did lose at every level. Because people actually hated the policies, they liked the person. So while on the one hand, Democrats are being shifted to the left, far to the left. And the Overton window perhaps itself is shifting as they stake out the most radical positions and those positions over time become more mainstream because political shifts happen faster and over a wider berth than they ever have. If you look at what was considered radical five or ten years ago, that becomes routine now in a lot of respects. Unthinkable things become the norm. In fact, hundreds of years of human history and teaching and practice have become overturned in recent years. But there's a whipsaw effect that's occurring because while on the one hand there's the impeach and remove at any cost caucus, there are also so-called moderates in hotly contested seats going into 2020, folks in Purple District, districts that, you know, were probably suburban, middle, upper middle class, you might even have Republican majorities, but they don't like Trump. And Republicans, to their credit, for once are actually playing political hardball. So you have Republicans in the House that are making amendments to legislation and forcing Democrats to actually take hard votes. So here's the latest one. There was gun legislation that came out in the House. And what did Republicans do? Well, it was a bill to expand federal background checks for gun purchases. This is how it's described in the Washington Post. So I'm going with the left interpretation of what happened here. And they write, 26 moderate Democrats join Republicans in amending the legislation, adding a provision requiring that ICE be notified if an illegal immigrant seeks to purchase a gun. Talk about a poison pill. Democrats can't vote for that. Well, actually, 26 so-called moderates did. This not only incensed the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, it actually incensed Nancy Pelosi too, because her job is to keep order within her party and make sure they all stick together. So again, I give Republicans credit. They actually played hardball once. Amazing. They should do it more often. They should do it on things that we care about. So what is the reaction of Speaker Pelosi and the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world? When we come back from this break, I'm going to go through the sort of gulag politics that you're about to see from the left. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton show. I'll explain what I mean by gulag politics in just a minute. 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Phone lines are open, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. During the break, I was scanning my Twitter feed and came across this great tidbit that sort of exemplifies exactly what we were talking about earlier when it comes to bureaucrats. This is Exhibit A of bureaucrats cashing in. I believe this is from... Politico. Annals of speculation. I'll quote from this little note. How much could Robert Mueller make if he decides to head to a law firm as he wraps up his investigation as special counsel? Washingtonians Marissa Cascino asked around, quote, as high a number as the market has available, says Jeffrey Lowe, the Washington managing partner of legal recruiting firm Major Lindsay in Africa. Quote, firms that can pay five million dollars will offer five million dollars. If they can pay between five million dollars and ten million dollars, that can be the number, two. To be clear, this is Politico writing. We're talking about annual compensation, so five to ten million bucks a year. Another quote, five million, I think that's the starting point, says the McCormick Group's Stephen Nelson. At least several million, says Garrison and Sisson's Dan Binstock, though he adds it could be significantly higher at certain firms. Exhibit A of bureaucrats cashing in. But let's actually look at the more substantive point, which is if Politico is writing right now, and I believe it's Politico, about how much Mueller stands to make in the private sector before the report is even delivered. This really must be a nothing burger of a report. I mean, you're talking about compensation for Robert Mueller before this report that we've been waiting for with these breathless bombshell report after bombshell report, day in, day out, every news cycle. Now the story that they want to focus on is how much Robert Mueller is going to make when the special counsel concludes. Let's go back to what I was talking about before, which is the democratic civil war and the sort of AOC versus Speaker Pelosi, Old Guard versus Young Turk split. Well, in this case, AOC and Pelosi are standing together against their so-called moderates in their party, who, of course, are a minority within their party. So the Washington Post headline is House Democrats explode in recriminations as liberals lash out at moderates. I'm kind of surprised that the article didn't read Republicans pounce on House Democrats explode in recriminations as liberals lash out. Well, they'll probably do it now. So that article says, and remember, this is dealing with legislation that 26 moderate Democrats in the House went along with Republicans on, where in expanding federal background checks for gun purchases, Republicans added a provision requiring that ICE be notified if an illegal immigrant seeks to purchase a gun. Democrats hate that. Now, it's absurd that they hate that, but Democrats hate that. So the article reads in part, and I quote, in a closed door session, a frustrated Speaker Nancy Pelosi lashed out at about two dozen moderates and pressured them to get on board. Quote, we are either a team or we're not, and we have to make that decision, unquote, Pelosi said, according to two people present but not authorized to discuss the remarks Publicly. But Ocasio-Cortez, the unquestioned media superstar of the freshman class, let's see when a Republican is described as an unquestioned media superstar in a supposedly straight news article on The Washington Post. The unquestioned media superstar of the freshman class upped the ante, admonishing the moderates and indicating she would help liberal activists unseat them in the 2020 election. So Ocasio-Cortez, this 29-year-old with no power in Congress whatsoever, but a massive social media following and a press that loves her, clearly, self-evidently, she's talking about primarying moderates. Corbin Trent, a spokesman for Ocasio-Cortez, said she told her colleagues that Democrats who side with Republicans quote unquote, are putting themselves on a list. You're on a list if you cross Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So now we're talking about blacklisting within the Democratic Party. Isn't that fascinating? Who are the ones acting like authoritarians? So Corbin Trent, this spokesman goes on. She said that when activists ask her why she had to vote for a gun safety bill that also further empowers an agency that forcibly injects kids with psychotropic drugs, you seriously can't make this stuff up. They're going to want a list of names and she's going to give it to them, Trent said, referring to U.S. Immigrations and Custom Enforcement. You're on a list. You're a moderate. You vote your conscience. You vote probably in line with what your moderate supposedly constituency says. You're on a list and you'll get primaried. Now, I encourage Ocasio-Cortez to try to primary these people because if they get primaried and they're in quote-unquote moderate districts, that means Republicans are going to sweep those districts clean and be back in a majority in the House. But seriously, that takes some nerve. First of all, again, who is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to be the one coming up with these litmus tests? But then even more importantly, Democrats are drawing lists. You know, I'm just, I'm reminded of the Seinfeld episode. Where Elaine Bennis, you know, she's on the list. She can't get the Chinese food. She's been blacklisted by the Communist Party. So when I talk about gulag politics, that's where I'm going. You're on a list. You're out. It's Ocasio-Cortez's way or the highway. Is that where the Democrats want to be? They want to systematically pick off anyone who dares dissent? From what progressivism demands? Again, please do that, Representative Ocasio-Cortez. Please, I beg of you, name and shame every single moderate who votes along with a Republican on something rational. Illegal aliens going to buy a gun. Hmm, maybe that should concern us a little bit. In fact, it's an issue in our home state. MS-13 runs rampant here. Ocasio-Cortez knows full well who they are. What if you're a law-abiding citizen in one of these places? What does Ocasio-Cortez say to you when a kid is out playing in the street, and an illegal alien buys a gun, kid gets shot accidentally by a gang member? What does she say to those parents? You know, being a leftist means never having to grapple with the consequences of your policies. Republicans, when the policies work out, Democrats will say, well, they didn't work out well enough, or they'll try to find the, the anti-silver lining, the fool's gold lining in it. Democrats, it's all about feelings. What feels good? What seems compassionate? It's never about getting thrown off your health care plan. It's never about never being able to see the doctor that you liked for your entire life. It's never about being freed from job lock, quote unquote, i.e. let's celebrate people getting fired because now you can go find better benefits somewhere else. AOC never has to grapple with the reality of anything that she says because the media will never hold. Where are the fact checkers going line by line, word by word through every last thing that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says? And I hate to harp on her because on the one hand, she's a sideshow. It's sort of embarrassing. On the other hand, though, she is a representative of where her party is going. At the very least, ideologically, I'm sure there are going to be more seasoned people that are going to follow in her footsteps, although, of course, Democrats might not like someone who's more seasoned. They think that she's authentic, quote unquote. She's a bartender, quote unquote. In fact, I would say that AOC is just the new age version of Bernie Sanders. And look where Bernie Sanders is. Bernie Sanders would have been would have been dismissed as a total kook. Socialist goes on his honeymoon to the Soviet Union. and if you haven't seen those videos, you have to see the videos of him celebrating, looking like the useful idiot that he is taking shots of vodka in the Soviet Union, in the Cold War, celebrating with these folks. But that guy would have been competitive in a general election last time around. And he's one of the favorites in the Democratic primary this time around. In fact, if it hadn't really been rigged on the Democratic side with the super delegates last time around, he probably beats Hillary Clinton. Ocasio-Cortez is just an inexperienced version of Bernie Sanders. So we can dismiss her, we can mock her, we can deride her, but the reality is she has built up a following in the public. And not only that, she has shifted the Overton window. I said it before, these policies, they may seem nuts and they are nuts and they are disastrous. And you can look at world experience, example after example, but the lesson has to be constantly retaught. That's what Reagan taught us, freedom never being more than one generation away. What Democrats are talking about right now are the worst possible ideas, the most regressive ideas you could ever have. They've been tried over and over again. Look at East and West Germany. Look at North Korea and South Korea. Examples are plentiful. They need to be taken seriously and they need to be fought day in and day out. We're going to talk a little about that Democratic field and what is to come. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. That's 844-900-2825. We'll be right back talking the horse race, Democratic radicalism, Overton Window, and much more. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. In just a short while, we're going to pivot to what's going on in international affairs, and we'll talk a little bit about China and North Korea. And you know, in some ways, it's funny to talk about the left, and then you're talking about China and North Korea and these other places where that's where the socialist dream is. And you know, maybe the best depiction of it is you look at a world map of different places at night and then during the day. North Korea is just dark. There's no activity. There's no commerce. It's a very telling thing when there is no light and literally you have a gulag nation. And I go back to, again... East Germany and West Germany, if you ever look, that is maybe the greatest controlled experiment of all time in terms of here you have the same people. They started out the same infrastructure, the same level of talent, the same traditions, values, principles, literally the same families. Look at where East Germany and West Germany were at the end of the Cold War. And even today, if you look at many measures East Germany is still behind West Germany in a lot of economic measures and other measures as well. That is the human toll of terrible ideas. Terrible ideas that there may be claims of good intentions behind, but imposing your view of what's moral and good and just, which requires mass wealth redistribution and dramatically altering the way that you conduct your lives, that's tyranny. Even if it ended up with good outcomes, quote-unquote, it's tyranny. And none of the socialists in any way will ever explain how it is that the stuff will be created that they then redistribute under a system where there's only redistribution. Who is going to create in that system? You're just going to be sharing a shrinking, shriveling, dying pie with everyone because there's no incentive to create, to be dynamic, to pursue your dreams. If you look at what the Soviet Union was like and you wonder in part today, why is the Soviet Union, if you look at the alcoholism rates, they're just off the charts. I would posit that one of the reasons probably is Human capital was destroyed by socialism, and you're still seeing the effects of it today. Which brings me to the Democrats' 2020 field. I see a major challenge for the Democrats in 2020, and it isn't just that I think Trump is going to have a great agenda to run on, or perhaps that the economy is going to be, continue to be rip-roaring and financial markets and all the other things that all the pundits always say are what people vote on. To be the Democrat that wins your nomination... You have to be sufficiently woke. You have to demonstrate social justice warriordom to the death. You also have to check the identity politics boxes. And then you still have to attempt to win a state like a Florida or an Ohio or a Pennsylvania or a Michigan. Now, while they won't make the same mistake as Hillary Clinton of not campaigning in a place like a Michigan, it is very tough to try to sweep out in a primary where everyone is so far left and everyone is trying to outdo each other on the left and then seem reasonable enough to win in those places where that are completely intolerable of that insane leftism. So I I just want to tick off the names. These were kind of my initial thoughts on a handful of names today. Okay, Joe Biden. What has Joe Biden been running on? Well, he took back a nice comment that he had for Vice President Mike Pence on social media because he got attacked by social justice warrior and failed candidate in New York, Cynthia Nixon. Took back his nice words for Mike Pence because, God forbid, you're actually friendly towards someone of the other party. Oh, yeah. And Uncle Joe went overseas in front of a European audience in the last couple weeks and badmouthed America. One of the first rules of one of the Seminal rules of politics that a quote-unquote elder statesman like a Joe Biden would acknowledge always is you don't go overseas and attack America. You just don't do that, period, full stop. Okay, we have Spartacus. Spartacus kicked off his campaign by violating rules in Congress while grandstanding during the shameful Kavanaugh hearings. And go look up his friend T-Bone. That's a laugher. Elizabeth Warren, well, Focahontas is the defining aspect of her career. Kamala Harris. Her own paramour admitted how she made her way to the top in San Francisco politics. Hint, it wasn't based on merit. She called for abolishing private insurance, compared ICE to the KKK, lied about her drug usage and attempting to cleanse the fact that she's now pro-drug after being anti-drug as a prosecutor, lied about the music she was listening to while smoking pot. So was she lying about the pot usage? Was she lying about the music she was listening to? Was she lying about her position altogether? Beto is the Robert Francis O'Rourke, I should say, is the cultural appropriation candidate and sort of the emo candidate. He's also a white male, and, and try as he might to call himself Beto. White male is a dangerous thing to be in the Democratic Party. Doesn't check off the identity politics box, try as he might. And of course, frames himself as Beto when he's running against someone of actual Cuban descent. But let's leave that aside. Amy Klobuchar. I thought that Amy Klobuchar could potentially be competitive because she kind of comes off as, you know, reasonable. She had all these moderate Republicans fawning over her in articles. But you cross Amy Klobuchar and she'll throw a stapler at your head. I mean, literally. It's like a character in office space, like a violent Milton or, you know. Her rage is more than Hillary Clinton's rage at Bill Clinton based upon the descriptions that we've seen. And then today we had the announcement that Washington Governor Jay Inslee would be running. And he is running as the climate change candidate, fighting the climate. So his platform, when we talk about fighting climate change, is let's massively reorganize our daily lives over a hypothetical issue where the scientists have been persistently wrong. And oh, by the way, their funding is generally tied to proving that the consensus is what they claim the consensus is about global warming that justifies all manner of wealth redistribution And oh, by the way, the worst offenders in the world won't go along with whatever their scheme is anyway. So we're going to sacrifice our position as the preeminent capitalist world power, but China and all the rest of the countries are going to keep trucking along. I would say the field is set tremendously for Donald Trump in a lot of ways, but long term, the woke crew is going to triumph over the Democratic Party. Again, I think the Overton window is shifting. The most radical positions have now been put out there by multiple candidates. They're all signed off on the Green New Deal. I'm going to talk about that in a second. They are directionally where the party is going. They may have staked out the positions too early. Those positions may be losers in 2020. They might even be losers in 2024. But where's the country going? Well, their view, the progressive view, is the view that dominates in popular culture, in our schools, everywhere. In the bureaucracy itself, in a lot of ways. And worth noting, incidentally, Democrats are out there working to kill the Electoral College right now. Colorado was the most recent state to enter an interstate compact that needs a majority. It needs, I think, 270 electoral votes uh, for this legislation to pass, where essentially you would have a national popular vote that determines where all the electoral votes in a given state go. So a state might vote Republican, but if the country majority votes Democrat, all those states' electors go Democrat. And it appears, at least right now, that it's constitutional. You have 12 states and the District of Columbia. Uh, I forget if they're included in the 12 or they're incremental to the 12 states. 172 electoral votes by latest count covered here. See, they want to actually have direct democracy, which is tyranny. All of these politicians love to talk about democracy, the greatest thing ever. The founders hated democracy. The founders talk about democracy as tyranny of the majority, where 50% plus one vote can vote away the rights of everyone else. Just because you have free voting doesn't mean you don't end up in tyranny. And let me just say, why the Greens? Why are they going with Green? Jay Inslee, the most recent one, and the Green New Deal and the rest of it. I would suggest that it's because science is the only way that they can justify socialism. The Green Movement is socialism masquerading as science. They have to create a crisis that they can justify by something that is unimpeachable, that you cannot argue against, or you're anti-science. So if the science demands a totalitarian response, only a Neanderthal could oppose it. Worst case, if the green agenda fails, they get their friends rich through cronyism. We have cylindras ad infinitum in perpetuity forever. That's what the green thing is really about. It's about they can't win based upon the actual evidence, so they need to go science. Aha. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-2825, 844-900-2825. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right. In a past episode of this program, I went into great detail into what I think is the most vital, underestimated, underappreciated, and potentially most significant of all policies that the Trump administration has undertaken. And of course, not gotten nearly the credit it deserves for it, in part because it is in some ways a rebuke of everything the experts, quote unquote, have told us for almost 50 years. And that is the fact that China is a competitor. More than that, it's, it's an adversary. And while the administration may couch its terms somewhat diplomatically at times, it's very clear that there has been a marked change. Now, why should we care about China as a major geopolitical competitor beyond the fact that it's the world's second biggest economy, it has nuclear weapons, it's a massive population and landmass, massive natural resources, And all the other knock-on effects of having this behemoth that's adversarial with a communist-run government facing us in a vitally important strategic region of the world. I always go back to the question, why should we care? How does this actually impact our daily life? And the first thing right off the bat is besides trade that we have with China, there's also the fact that literally trillions of dollars worth of goods, traffic through areas, seas, that are in China sort of near abroad. And if that were to change, if that relationship were to somehow fundamentally change or those seas were not to be able to be patrolled freely by the US, you can imagine the economic calamity that would occur if China actually took aggressive measures there. And, and by the way, the Chinese military has threatened US ships in this region. So this is a real threat and it really does impact actually the day to day. And we're not just talking stock prices, but we're talking about cost of goods When you go down to your local Walmart or any other store in America, for that matter. Overshadowed in what I've termed sort of the kabuki theater of the Cohen hearing and all the rest that we're about to see over the next couple of years. Over the last two weeks, there were three major developments, three major stories relating to China that have nothing to do with the trade deal that may or may not ultimately end up being negotiated. What are those three stories? Well, one of them starts in all places in Cincinnati, Ohio. I doubt that you saw this story. A local news source there, WCPO9 Cincinnati, a local television station, I believe, wrote an article titled Chinese spies covet Cincinnati's corporate secrets. Was October arrest an isolated incident? And here's how that article starts. It says, To anyone who was startled when an alleged Chinese spy who targeted GE Aviation was arrested in October 2018, here's an even more alarming fact. It wasn't an isolated incident. Cincinnati companies are regular targets of Chinese spies, hackers, counterfeiters and business partners. This news source has learned from court documents, government records and interviews with business and federal law enforcement officials. And then they go on to quote a US attorney for the Southern District of Ohio. "Quote, economic espionage is a very significant threat," said Benjamin Glassman. "It could cost people their jobs. It could destroy companies." With the destruction of companies comes the destruction of communities and really a radically different place for the United States in the world. And the article goes on to talk about all the sorts of economic espionage that has involved companies just in Cincinnati, Ohio alone. And you can bet that there are investigations into this sort of espionage everywhere because as the article lays out, there have been indictments, numerous indictments that the Trump administration under this FBI and Department of Justice have ramped up to bring Chinese nationals to justice. And in the particular case, when it comes to GE Aviation, it involved what's termed the first Chinese intelligence officer to be extradited to the U.S. for prosecution. And by the way, he's not the only one. News broke just before we came on tonight that Canada is set to begin proceedings that will allow Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou to be extradited to the U.S. per an announcement from the Canadian Department of Justice on Friday. So this is ramping up. We are starting to bring Chinese actors who violate sanctions, potentially, allegedly or engage in economic espionage, we're actually taking the fight to them. We are applying justice. We are not acting fearful in our response and proving that we're a paper tiger as the Chinese may have assumed for say the last eight years and really probably the last 28 or 38 or 48 years. So one story is Cincinnati. Another story, a report out from the US Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship That's chaired by Senator Marco Rubio, who has come out as one of the staunchest China hawks joining the Trump administration and encouraging the Trump administration's actions against the Chinese. His committee put out a report called Made in China 2025 and the Future of American Industry. Now, Made in China 2025 is all about Chinese dominance in manufacturing and industry. And of course, the way they do that is in part is by cheating when it comes to trade, is by economic espionage, is by enforcing terms when it comes to our dealings with them. that are completely one sided and go in their direction. And what this report lays out, and I'll quote in part from it, is the Made in China 2025 industrial plan targets 10 high value industrial sectors for global dominance, demonstrates that the Chinese government is doing more than merely breaking the rules. It is seeking to set new terms for international economic competition. Evaluating the Made in China 2025 plan should contribute to the American policy framework in two ways. First, assessing the plan's particular goals and progress toward them can identify areas for defensive action. Second, comparing areas of China's success to America's relative decline can help identify areas for creative reform. China has a direction that they're going when it comes to manufacturing and industry. We're playing defense right now. We're just starting to identify the scale of these Chinese efforts and their intent, which is ultimately to undermine us. Last point I'll point out. Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations just released a report that I urge you to look at. It's called China's Impact on the U.S. Education System, and it represents perhaps the most extensive investigation to date of Confucius Institutes. What are Confucius Institutes? Well, they're Communist Party-backed educational, so-called cross-cultural exchange programs backed with Chinese money, oftentimes with Chinese Communist Party-approved professors who go to U.S. universities. And they teach. And of course, naturally, when you look at what they teach, it's a completely one sided pro Chinese communist curriculum. And actually, FBI director Ray has indicated that there may be espionage associated with these so-called educational programs, including spying on Chinese nationals who are here. So it's not just necessarily collecting information that might be useful from U.S. universities, but it's even spying on what they consider their own people and threatening them. And this report goes into great detail about the size, scope and sale of these activities. And we're talking hundreds of these across the U.S. We're also talking hundreds of millions of dollars that China has put into this. This is real foreign influence. This is foreign meddling in US society when you have a foreign power adversarial putting millions of dollars into our academic institutions to advocate for literally the party line, the Chinese Communist Party line. When we come back, we'll talk with Stephen Yates about China, North Korea, and a whole bunch of other goings on in the region. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, 844-900-BUCK, that's 844-900-2825.
1: They wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety and we couldn't do that. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted, but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that. So we continue to work and we'll see, but we had to uh, walk away from that. I think we'll end up being very good friends with Chairman Kim and with North Korea, and I think they have tremendous potential. I've been telling everybody, they have tremendous potential. Unbelievable potential, but uh, we're going to see. But it was about sanctions. I mean, they wanted sanctions lifted, but they weren't willing to do an area that we wanted.
3: That was President Trump talking about his negotiations with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. And clearly to the disappointment of many in the media who wanted to say that Trump made a horrendous deal, as sad as it is to say. But you could see that in their reactions. Trump, in my view, rightly, walked away from the table from a horrible deal when it comes to the U.S. national interest. Today, we're going to speak with Steve Yates about both North Korea, trade negotiations, and more broadly, the Trump administration's China policy. And Steve joins us now. He's an expert on Asian politics, geopolitics, and perhaps most notably, the former Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney from 2001 to 2005. You can follow him on Twitter at Yates DCIA. Steve, thanks so much for joining us.
0: A pleasure to be with you.
3: Well, let's start in North Korea. And and the vital question when it comes to all of these negotiations is, what does Kim Jong-un actually want to achieve? So I asked that question to you. What does he want?
0: Well, it's a, it's a fair question. But I think before you even get to that, I think there's a couple of things that are long-term issues where people were experts, pundits, and sometimes foreign leaders mistake where our president thinks he wants to go and how he's going to get there. Uh, and I think we've seen in this instance another example of people making long-term assumptions based on short-term tactics by our president. And just as they have been in for several years now, they're likely to be wrong. And so the on-again, off-again summits and walking away from the table, it's part of what this president does uh, in his negotiations. And sooner or later, people will figure it out. North Korea, uh, I The best we can tell, this is one of the most isolated parts of the planet. Uh, It wants some sense of connection with the outside world, but not too much in its own country. It still has total control. Uh, And it wants easing of sanctions, which affect its ruling class more than its people. Uh, And uh, it wants the U.S. to remove its forces from the Korean Peninsula, somewhat lessening the security threat it perceives. So those have been basic elements that they've been talking about for three two-term U.S. presidents of Clinton, Bush, and Obama uh, in different ways. And all of those conventional approaches to diplomacy in those administrations failed to change the direction North Korea was going. Hence, we have a Donald Trump and a different approach to these talks.
3: Kim Jong-un's predecessor, his father, Kim Jong-il, left a last will and testament, at least parts of which have been disseminated publicly. And in that last will and testament, he laid out a strategy to essentially use nuclear weapons as, in some sense, a bargaining chip with the ultimate goal of reunification of the Korean peninsula, presumably under communist rule. So a Korean peninsula where North Korea is the dominant power there. Obviously in South Korea, we have an administration which is uh, somewhat more favorably disposed towards the North Koreans than those in the past. Do you think that Kim Jong-un ultimately wants reunification as his number one goal?
0: I think that is their dream, and I think in the North Korean propaganda world, they believe their dream, uh, but it only takes a few seconds of awareness of what reality is in North Korea. Uh, even even some skeptical journalists have been able to go from time to time, uh, and some uh, health ministries, like the Graham ministries, have been able to go to hospitals. You get a glimpse, and it's, it's so different. It's the most pulverized polity on the planet that there's no way there's going to be any meaningful unification like East and West Germany uh, at the end of the Cold War uh, anytime soon. And so they do have that dream. They do see themselves as on the winning side of this. And South Koreans, for the most part, they, for many decades, had the same dream, but with them on top of it. And in recent decades, they've kind of come to the conclusion of this would be extremely costly, extremely risky. And just because we're technically all Koreans, we're totally different than these people now. Uh, and so I think there's been this desire to give peace a chance on the South, but not necessarily wanting unification but and having to deal with. the the cultural and economic dead weight that North Korea would be for them.
3: Absent the the credible threat of a real imminent attack to Kim Jong-un's regime or a sanctions regime that is so airtight that it is literally completely starved for capital, how are we not to assume that Kim Jong-un will continue to try to play us off with negotiations and bite his time because he knows the reality that at most... Donald Trump has six years left, whereas Kim Jong-un is leader for life absent some sort of coup.
0: Well, I think there's a heavy, heavy reality in what you described. Uh, and, you know, sort of when I first went into government, I was told that the easiest answer for uh, a government lawyer to give when asked the question is no. <laughs> and the easiest assumption when uh, wondering about changes in fundamental policy or direction of the countries is also know that these, these regimes linger longer than anyone would like and sometimes are even forecast. In the 1990s, I was on the receiving end of some public, but also some internal government reports that forecast the imminent collapse of North Korea. Tons of evidence very high confidence and obviously we're two decades later and they're still there. Uh, so, uh, I think the odds are he stays in this. And so I think somewhat rationally the president's strategy is to do what is necessary to mitigate the threats that get beyond the peninsula. So his approach to this, uh, whether by coincidence, dumb luck, design, whatever it is, have resulted in many fewer. In other words, none, of the provocations that occurred during the Obama administration when they were not engaging in talks. And he still avoided the major concessions with a lot of money and other kinds of changes that were put forward under the Clinton and Bush administrations. So for now, I think he's been threading that needle. I don't think uh, it's been a mistake to try to hold out the Vietnam economic development model as something for a North Korean to possibly understand and maybe aspire to, because they're not going to become Seoul They could march in the direction of a a reformed communist economy. And that's what Vietnam has been.
3: If you accept the premise that North Korea is in some sense a proxy of China and probably does not make any major decision without serious consultation with Xi's regime, given that background, do we believe that stepping away from the table impacts talks with China and Xi?
0: I believe it does, but I also believe that was the president's intent. Uh, It was conspicuous that he made direct mention of the trade talks and the fact that what he was doing in Hanoi by getting together and meeting and putting cards face up on the table, uh, saying publicly how much positive rapport there is between the two leaders. And yet they had demands that we couldn't accept. And so it's a bad deal. I'm going to walk away. And he made a direct reference to the coming conversation with Xi Jinping that is supposed to be at Mar-a-Lago soon, uh, and that he would be prepared to take the same approach. He's got fabulous rapport with Xi Jinping, supposedly something that I find hard to understand, given that I don't believe that communist leaders have a soul with which to have rapport. Uh, But uh, the president is playing that part. uh, And uh, I think it was a a strong positive signal. Now we have to see what he does, Uh, but best I can tell, The administration is looking for a framework for long-term negotiations on trade, not believing that they're going to get a quick hit on China trade that's going to solve the problem. And in that regard, it's the same as North Korea.
3: Goes without saying how vital trade is between the U.S., the number one economic power in the world, and China at number two. Do you see the trade negotiations, as I do, as one part, one facet, albeit a very big one, of a much more comprehensive pushback, in some sense, overturning almost 50 years of U.S. policy vis-a-vis China, pushing back on both when it comes to law enforcement, that is, indictments over espionage and other at- malign acts of the Chinese in the U.S., a military buildup, rhetorical, and then also substantive policy issues where we are comprehensively pushing back. Is trade just one facet of a comprehensive plan, in your view?
0: So I deeply hold that view, that the trade negotiations are very important. Uh, They're fundamentally much, much more important to China than they are to the United States. And I think we might have the first administration in my lifetime that fully understands that, or at least partially understands that. Uh, But China's economic dependence on the United States is a sizable proportion of its total GDP. Uh, For the United States, our interaction with China is like half a percent. Of, of gdp uh and you know we don't want to lose that willy-nilly that kind of a change matters and will be felt but it's far from fundamental uh and so we have a, a negotiating position of strength and it's good that we have some sense of that and engage in the conversation but whether it's beginning with vice president pence's speech at the hudson institute last october uh, but i've had interactions with australian senior leaders and japanese senior leaders and even some european senior leaders and now even our friends in the Great White North and Canada, there's a fundamentally different conversation about China today because we don't just look at the threats that are happening inside their country or in international relations, but they, under the Communist Party's rule, are interfering with the fundamental institutions of our nations, our education systems, our media, uh, and our political systems. And I think for the first time... In most of my career, they're not getting a complete pass. Nothing big has really been done to change it yet. They've been called out on the Huawei technology uh, issues and 5G and sanctions busting when it comes to Iran. Uh, So we're at the beginning of this larger conversation. But I'm very, very heartened that the conversation is taking place beyond just the usual lobbying halls about trade or no trade. It's a bigger strategic issue and uh it's it's kind of bothered me that people have talked about the cold war being over in the early 1990s when a very large communist party plays a serious role in global strategy today
3: there's a substantial challenge for the administration which is that long term china i think clearly does represent the biggest geopolitical threat to america but in the short term financial markets and many in the business community hate the sort of punitive policy that the Trump administration has taken to develop the leverage to actually have, hopefully, beneficial negotiations. If you were counseling the president, how would you suggest that he deals with the competing tensions of needing to keep the pressure on China, which has had real impact internally in China, but also dealing with the fact that financial markets don't necessarily like it and he's going to be on the ballot in two years?
0: You no, know, I think that the the administration's team at the at the highest levels are are very sensitive to this and very aware of it. Uh, uh, now, I I, w- I wouldn't mislead to say that I have been brought into multiple inside conversations and this is what I hear firsthand in those multiple conversations. But uh, but my dealings with them uh, indicate that they that they basically have somewhat. Of a divide and conquer communication strategy, which is hard in this day and age, that everything goes out into different medium and blurs together. Uh, but they've been they've been messaging to Wall Street uh, their intent, which they mean to try to make some real progress in rebalancing the U.S.-China economic relationship. Uh, and I, I think that they have worked into their communications somewhat uh, an element that I I believe strongly in, that uh, I have a great respect for the history of China and for the people of China. Uh, I don't really think that the policies we stand for are anti-China. That's what the Communist Party wants to parlay out there to keep us from being able to do anything to protect our own interests. It's the Communist Party that's the problem. That's the 1% of China uh, that dominates the 99% of the rest of the Chinese. And that 1%, is the one that has denied their culture, their heritage, and broken their fundamental institutions of family and faith and other things that were valuable parts of the historical Chinese experience. And so while that's a a big nugget to get out there in the public, there are elements, I think, of the administration's thinking to understand this. So they speak to the Wall Street, which they're familiar with, and uh, they have people on the team that talk every day uh, with leading influencers up there. Uh, to try to make sure that they understand, we are going to try for outcomes. This isn't just an all-out war for the sake of war. When it comes to the talk of trade, uh, it's a rebalancing with a purpose, and we should benefit from it. And so should the Chinese people. If done right, and secondarily, uh, they so far have remained committed to keeping elements of pressure in place. There's some, of, you know, they've delayed the escalation of tariffs from go, uh, from 10 and 15 percent up to 25 uh but uh, that's for a time and i think if he, as the president has to walk away from the next round of talks without meaningful progress those things will come into play and he'll keep the the leverage going into the election cycle he can't afford to go soft on this in my estimation and hold the electoral college coalition he had in the rust belt states that was a big change in 2016 and it made a strategic difference politically
3: Steve, we're going to have to leave it right there. Thank you so much for coming on. We've been speaking with Steve Yates. You can follow him on Twitter at Yates DCIA. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
3: This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Lines are open. All right, we just spoke with Steve Yates former Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, and someone who I would say has a tremendous grasp on the situation in Asia, this battle that's going on right now between the Chinese and their proxies, namely North Korea, and then all of the other nations. And the U.S. has been working to align itself with these other nations and start to comprehensively counter China. And, you know, for years, for decades and decades, we were told about China's peaceful rise. This relationship was open with Richard Nixon back in the 70s. And the idea was that China would get rich alongside the US. This would be in both of our interest. Economic liberalization, quote unquote, would lead to political liberalization. Well, everything that we've seen since Tiananmen Square in 1989 proves that that was pure folly. And guess what? The Chinese Communist Party doesn't necessarily want to be a peaceful trade partner. Essentially, what we have helped to do is build China's economy. And it's not just through anything resembling free trade or fair trade. It's through stolen intellectual property on the parts of the Chinese. It's through economic espionage. It's through unfair trade dealings. It's through cyber attacks. It's through them killing our intelligence officers, literally. It's through the biggest attack in U.S. history, cyber attack in U.S. history, the Office of Personnel and Management, where essentially China stole the files of more than 20 million, supposedly, government employees. The most sensitive information, the documents they fill out to try to get a government job. When there's a national security implication, there's an investigation, a substantial background check. And we're talking hundred plus pages background check. China hacked that information and it gave them a tremendous advantage. Trump has challenged this notion of China's peaceful rise. He said in his national security strategy in 2017, economic liberalization has not led to political liberalization. We're actually a strategic competitor of China. And it's maybe even more ramped up than that. And we've seen a comprehensive effort by the Trump administration to start to push back on this. And with my next guest, we'll talk about some more things that the Trump administration has pointed out about the failure of our elites and how detrimental it's been to our national interest. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton show, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Lines are open 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. We've talked a lot this evening, in particular in hour one, about the deficiencies on the democratic side, both ideologically and tactically, but that at the same time, the world is in some ways also going their way. Now, in January, Tucker Carlson set the Republican intellectual world ablaze by articulating, in a sense, why Trump won. Namely, that he called out a failed in- intellectual elite, a failed ruling class, starting with Mitt Romney. And this was in response, in part, to Mitt Romney's anti Trump editorial in the Washington Post. And what Tucker raised were many failings of the elite, starting with the fact that they're not really ruling for the common good anymore so much as. The good of third world nations or feel good policies that make them feel as if they're virtuous and compassionate people, regardless of the outcomes for their supposed beneficiaries, while they continue to enrich themselves and accrue more power. Dr. Matt Peterson has written extensively about this. He's the vice president of education at the Claremont Institute and editor of The American Mind. And he wrote the piece at that new website, The American Mind, where he argues Tucker Carlson is right Now, full disclosure, before we jump in, I'm a Publius fellow at the Claremont Institute, and I continue to do work with them because I think they're a great institution that's doing God's work in trying to restore America's founding principles. Dr. Peterson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for that introduction, Ben. Thanks. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you for writing this piece. Let's start at the highest level, which is how, in your view, have our elites failed us?
2: Oh, gosh. So there's so many ways. I and mean, I would start, though, with a misunderstanding of American principles and purpose. Uh, the, the first failing you'd have to talk about is that the education of our elites fails to understand and distinguish what is distinctive about America and what American, the American principles of government are, and therefore what we ought to be aiming at, what's the purpose. Uh, and so what you have, what you see uh, in elite society is a, an unwillingness or uh, an aura, a culture that is very reluctant to embrace something distinctly American. And it's much more apt to say what's wrong with America, right? Uh, and, and, and it's d- suspicious of, of patriotism. I would start there. Uh, and then the problem is that outside of that, if you don't have a, a way to, to, um, to be a patriotic elite, or you're not taught what the principles and purposes of your government are, you then descend to self-interest. Right. Uh, the only other thing you have in the academy is self-interest or some form of then social justice uh, woke doctrine. Right. So this, this is an enormous problem uh, that's it's been going on for a long time. It's been building for a long time. But what you see now are people like Tucker talking about it explicitly on the right in ways that uh, really no one has for some time.
3: There's a political element, of course, but if you believe that politics is downstream from the culture, part of what comes out of our elites are sort of norms, governing practices for how to live your life. And and that comes well before we talk about policies. Charles Murray, whose work I'm sure you're very well familiar with, talks about in one of his books, the idea that the elites don't preach what they practice. In other words, they sort of promote an anything goes, progressive, utopic sort of worldview Uh, where they reject the traditional values and principles on which our entire civilization is based. But then in their own lives, they live very conventionally, and they really do a disservice when they exhibit certain behavior in their rhetoric and other behavior in their private life. Do you think that factors into the sort of Tucker thesis and your view as well?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think Tucker is 100% right about this, and obviously Charles Murray uh, has spearheaded Uh, the the proof of this in in, in very real and damning social science. So what you see is that when you are a member of the elite, you're reluctant to adopt any policy that actively promotes the health of the family at the same time that, you know, uh, because of your station, you know that that getting married is a good idea. Staying married is a good idea. Uh, Marriage is much healthier among elites than it is, among the rest of society. And so this is where Tucker really made his mark. This is why Tucker's monologue uh, uh, resonated uh, throughout the country. What he said was, and this is quote, culture and economics are inseparably intertwined. Certain economic systems allow families to thrive and thriving families make market economies possible. That's what he said. And so what he did is, is do something different. He said, no, 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 you can't just treat policies if it's separate from the promotion or the denigration of the family, uh, economics, as it used to be called, is used to be called political economy, economics is necessarily tied to um, uh, to, to morality and, and to uh, promoting certain kinds of behavior and rewarding it and punishing other kinds of behavior or discouraging it. And I don't really think this should be controversial, but unfortunately, a lot of rhetoric on the right uh, that we're just used to, that we've adopted over the last few decades, makes it controversial to say these things.
3: I think it's kind of a truism that an economy derives from a culture, and embedded in that, to your point, is the idea that morality matters and it clearly functions in a free market. And a capitalist system doesn't just arise out of nowhere. Otherwise, you know the people who had claimed that china for example would become economic would become politically liberal and socially liberal because it's economically liberal they would have been proven right if it was that economics decided but actually it's the other way around and it starts with people and their own voluntary actions now the criticism of tucker's piece and you deal with this in your piece as well is that if the free market leads to certain disasters in society, creative destruction implies both not only creation, but also destruction, and there's real societal cost to that, then is Tucker arguing, and are folks like you who support his argument, then arguing that we should sort of rebel against the free market in some ways because there are societal losses in free market systems as well?
2: I think it's a matter of priority. I think um, I think the best way to understand it is that, for it's, um, in nature, it does desire a, a free market in the sense that we we do have a drive within us right to be creative to take initiative to buy and sell things among um, amongst ourselves so forth, and so on. But in order to do that, we need a governmental structure around it some way for, that, that establishes kind of rules of the game uh, and and points us in certain directions as opposed to others. So let me give an example because I understand absolutely why many people might be listening saying, I'm not sure what this guy's talking about, or I, I don't know if I quite agree with Tucker. This sounds like you know, some kind of socialism, or some kind of uh, you know, great society type doctrine. And, and this is not what we're talking about. It's not what Tucker's co- talking about. Carlson said that our leaders should speak out against the ugliest parts of our financial system because not all commerce is good. Uh, some commerce is, in fact, uh, harmful. And so one of the questions he asked was, why is it why is it defensible to loan people money, poor people money, that they can't possibly repay? So take payday loan outlets in poor neighborhoods, right? 400% annual interest. Uh, this is this is this is a practice where you might raise a question mark. You might say, why is this commerce good? And in fact, in American history, Abraham Lincoln, when he first ran for office, said. You know, loaning money uh, to poor people at exorbitant rates of interest is bad idea. Uh, Noah Webster, during the ratification debate, said, look, you can't separate the morals of the people from the influence of money on men's sense of justice and moral obligation. Uh, the law you know, influences our habit, and we should restrict uh, credit to people who won't be able to pay money back in order really to encourage them to, to save and to be responsible. Now, I think that's a matter of common sense. Uh, but, but when you, when you have a, a kind of a brittle conservative rhetoric, uh, it really is libertarian in a way, right, that says, well, there's no connection. I mean, that's, that's why people were upset with what Tucker was saying. But I think Noah Webster was right, right? Laws to prevent credit the poor people. They help encourage good behavior, bad behavior.
3: So that that leads to a fundamental question which is, is it government's job in some way to promote virtue? People instantly sort of recoil when you talk about should government be promoting certain morals, values and principles and not others? Do you believe that it is the fundamental job of government to do so? I think that the first instinctual reaction of many
2: uh, older conservatives would be to say, Uh, what are you talking about? The Taliban had a Department of Virtue and Vice. And the last thing we do is, the last thing we want is to increase the power of the administrative state. And there is certainly a, a lot of truth to that. In a way, I agree with that 100%. At the same time, we can't neglect what law is. And here, the American founders can help us out because they did not promote a kind of Great society, where government interfered in every part of people's lives. On the other hand, they did not lie to themselves and think that law and, and policy on matters of numbers, right, on matters of economic policy, uh, were just kind of morally neutral. They knew that law either encourages or discourages certain kinds of habit and certain kind of kinds of behavior, and they didn't pretend otherwise. So, so the way I put it is, of course. Government and law can't, you know, reach inside people and make them virtuous. Uh, that, that certainly is not something that law can do directly. In fact, other institutions could be doing that much more directly than government. On the other hand, I mean, to reward certain kinds of behavior and encourage it, right? Certain kinds of habits and ways of life. And it's going to discourage other kinds of habits and and ways of life. And to pretend otherwise, I I think, is, is very dangerous.
3: Where does Trump factor in in this thesis? I mentioned in my open that in some sense, what Tucker was explaining is why Trump won. While the elites failed. He called them out on it. What is the takeaway in terms of what the future of conservatism looks like? Is there something within Trump that recognizes the problem and you can say— Here are the sorts of policies that we might want to push for based upon what he saw in the electorate. So I guess one question, what does the future of conservatism look like? Two, will the Republican rank and file simply reject this out of hand and take the sort of view that, well, look, this was a blip in U.S. history. This president actually rejected everything that we showed in our 2012 autopsy of why Mitt Romney lost and the status quo will ultimately prevail again.
2: Uh, well, I am certainly of the view that even though there are many people in Washington and and elsewhere uh, in power, you know, President Trump. I mean, it, it, they they think that once President Trump leaves the scene, and of course they hope to force him out, off the scene, uh, force him off the stage. Um, they, they hope that things will go back to the way they were, and I think this is a, a dangerous delusion as well. I don't think things are going to go back to the way they were. I think that what we're having is, or what we should be having, is a very serious debate about what is a matter of principle and what's a matter of policy. So principles should be the things that don't change, right, uh, that, that dictate what kind of policy we should propose given the circumstances. But policy changes over time because we find ourselves in different circumstances. So uh, you know, to give an example of, 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 I think, what Trump understands and what Trump can actually uh, teach us, uh, in the Federalist papers let 's go all the way back to the you know the ratification of the u s Constitution. Uh, it, our founders are very clear about this: justice is the end of government and, and Charles Kessler uh, the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, warned of this twenty years ago. He said conservatives avoid arguing about questions of justice whenever possible, and, and by that, I think he meant you know they like to argue about numbers and GDP and and uh, utilitarian kind of arguments of efficiency and they did 't want to argue about justice in the meantime, the left talked about justice all the time, right. Social justice is, is their mantra. And, and so if we avoid arguing about questions, of arguing about political questions and talking about justice, uh, we really are, are eschewing politics, Kessler said, whose central issue is justice. And, and that's a problem. So the example I would give is a matter of rhetoric. When it comes to economic policy, whatever the policy should be, we can debate about. We can debate about, right, with evidence. If we, if we you know, tariffs is an example. Will this lead to the ends that we want Think about the, the, the arguments that are going to win, that resonate with people. Trump's argument economically over and over again is, I care about our people. My purpose is uh, to make their lives better. And he's very clear about that. He's very, he, in very simple and stark language. Whereas conservatives are still, in a way, fighting the Cold War. In, in their mind, you know, they're fighting against the Soviet Union, and they'll say things like, well, you know, this is good because it's, it's free, it leads to freedom, and it, it's part of the free market." Well, freedom is good, right? But freedom needs to be justified because ultimately justice is the end of government.
3: The name of the piece is Tucker Carlson is right. You can find it at The American Mind. And we've been speaking with its author, my friend, Dr. Matt Peterson, vice president of the Claremont Institute, and also the editor of the new website, The American Mind. Dr. Peterson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be right back. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, so we're about to round out hour three here on the Buck Sexton Show, and this has been Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Follow me on Twitter at b h bhweingarten. Check out my website at benweingarten.com. In our last interview, we spoke about one thing that was very fundamental, and it extends beyond any single presidency. It's bigger than Donald Trump. It's bigger than Democrats and Republicans, really. We talked about the fact that our elites have failed us. Our ruling class has failed us. And that extends beyond any one party. This outrage, this resistance, it extends beyond any one party because really what Donald Trump represents is a threat to the power of that failed, largely progressive, Bipartisan elite and a representation of what the American people want and the American people being fed up with a so-called group of representatives that don't actually represent them so Trump in my view is a living breathing symbol that they failed he's constructed a massive Trump Tower in their collective heads again this goes beyond any one presidency and it goes to the core of what our nation is built on and that is the idea of consent of the governed that is how our republic works. The resistance, the outrage, the intransigence of our political class is in direct proportion to how strong his punch back has been against them. They hate him. They hate what he represents because he represents their failure. And he represents you, you deplorable Americans, anyone who doesn't agree, anyone who dissents from the prevailing progressive orthodoxy. Finally, I just want to thank Buck Sexton for having me on tonight. It's been a real honor and privilege. Hope you have a great weekend. Again, this is Ben Weingarten. Follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten and online at benweingarten.com. Thank you so much and have a great weekend.